Good Saturday, East Tennessee. Welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI, and you know, the 21st century, we're in the information age. There is no question about it. We've seen rapid adoption of new technologies, and the information age is being fueled by a knowledge economy that values problem-solving, critical thinking, And in the last decade alone, advancements in technology and in the medical field have included virtual reality, virtual assistance. Uh, With the onset of this pandemic, we have new ways we work mobily and virtually. Everything has been changing. Uh, On the medical side, we have an HIV prevention pill. We have other immunotherapies for cancer treatment. What will the future bring for innovation and for researchers? And what does that mean for our economy? What does that mean for your money? What types of investment opportunities are there? It's just going to be the the next 10 years, the 2020s, in my view, could be an exceptional period of innovation and growth. And while we do have other challenges, you know, it's, it's going to be real interesting to see how things evolve and what our life looks like in 2030. Dr. Amy Elliott has her Ph.D. in mechanical engineering from Virginia Tech, and she works out at Oak Ridge National Lab. She's been in their manufacturing demonstration facility since 2030. Amy has several patents pending in, uh, that are related to 3D printing technology. In addition to her research... She mentors interns and leads students and all-female student groups at ORNL. So good morning, Amy. Welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. So you, your, your research has really focused on 3D printing, which I guess is formally known as additive manufacturing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But we can just say 3D printing. 3D printing, right. And it's really, um, you know, I mean, 3D printing kind of came on my plate, uh, kind of came on my radar. Uh, God, it's been probably five or six years when I, some of the conferences I've attended. But many of our listeners may not really, or, or some be somewhat unfamiliar with 3D printing. So what is 3D printing and how does it work? Right, yeah. So um, we like to call it just another tool in the tool in the toolbox of manufacturing, um, but it is unique. And the way it works is it builds objects layer by layer. So normally when we're making something, you start with a block of material and then you carve it away. That's what we call subtractive manufacturing. And so 3D printing or additive manufacturing, you're actually adding that material layer by layer. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, One of the most common ways is you have um, what we call an extruder where you push plastic through a hot nozzle, just like a hot glue gun. And then you use that nozzle to draw the first layer. And then you come over top and you draw another layer and you keep drawing until, until your part is finished. So that's one way, but there's lots of ways we can actually 3D print with metals too, using an entirely different type of technology. Well, so what kind of products do you, do you produce and what can you make with a 3D printer? Like walk us through the different kinds of things that you can make with a 3D printer. Yeah, it's really just limited to the materials you can 3D print. So, you know, if you're printing plastic things, we can, um, we focus a lot on tooling. So 
um, with our large plastic printers, we can make tooling for fiberglass layup, um, carbon fiber layup, <clears throat> which is, um, you know, useful for, you know, make, making bolt holes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you can also make wind turbine blades using um, plastic molds. Um, and so there's a lot of useful things you can, you can make with 3D printing. And then on the metal side, you know, replacement car parts, I know, um, that Jay Leno uses 3D printing. He'll he'll take you know he has his his fleet of very old cars that don't have replacement parts anymore, and he can you know 3D scan those parts and then print a metal part out of you know using 3D printing to replace that. And so um, really, wow. it's just a limit of imagination. Well, what about clothing? Can we print clothing with a 3D printer? Yes, <laughs> um, I actually have a pair of 3D printed shoes that I love. Um, because, you know, they, they fit my feet exactly, you know, they took measurements of my feet and, and I have a custom pair of shoes. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's gonna, that's what I'm most excited about actually is 3d printed fashion. <laughs> well, you know, it was, it was, um, years ago when I first heard about 3d printing, how, how has it been embraced in the, in the manufacturing world? I mean, what, I would imagine there's very heavy costs in that. I mean, what's the balance between, you know, costs coming down versus manufacturers embracing it? Right, absolutely. Um, so that's that's the driver, right? The cost has to be right. <laughs> but, you know, manufacturers are not going to adopt this if the cost isn't there. And that's one of the things that we research is actually how to reduce the cost. And the main thing that we um, work towards is speed. So speeding these processes up makes them cheaper. Um, but, yeah, the embracing by manufacturing has um, – you know, it's, you know, it always takes a while to, to get that adoption, but we see a lot of it now. Um, a lot of companies are using uh, 3D printing rather than these other processes that require tooling. So, you know, normal manufacturing, you're stamping, you're molding, you know, you have all these processes that require these really expensive tools that take a long time to make and they come from China um, you know, it's a very intensive process and it limits your innovation cycle because you have to wait on this tooling. You spend so much on this tooling. But with 3D printing, you don't need a tool. You can make any shape with the same printer. Um, and so that's what we're seeing is in those strategic applications where maybe, you know, you're not making thousands of parts. You're making a few hundred parts. It makes more sense to 3D print them rather than invest in tooling. So when you talk about a printer, like, what does that look like? What does a 3D printer look like? Yeah, so, I mean, there's lots of different kinds, um, all shapes and sizes. The one I have in my basement is, you know, it looks like a little box um, with a platform inside and, you know, very pretty simple. But then we have 3D printers that are, you know, massive, you know, 20 feet long, 20 feet wide, um, all the way up to um, printers that are just cables, and base stations and a crane. <laughs> That's our SkyBam technology. Wow. Um, so they really come in any shape and size. Now, what types of advances are you all, you and others, hoping to make through 3D printing? You know, like as we move forward. Is it mainly driving the cost down so that it can be more embraced? Or what, what are the main advances you're looking at? Yeah, um, in addition to cost, we are looking at what are the new shapes we can make with 3D printing. So you kind of have to step outside of your traditional engineering training and think about, okay, I'm not making these boxy shapes that can be made with a mill or a drill press. I can make any shape that I want. How do I use that? And so, um, you know, for 
some of, you know, engineering applications, you know, like heat exchange, you know, like how your refrigerator exchanges heat. Now we can make these really cool heat exchangers that work so much better because they're what we're called, we call optimized. Um, and so really looking into all the different applications that, you know, have been limited by the shapes we could make before, what are the new shapes that are going to be way more efficient, um, way more efficient by 3D printing them. And then I'll, that will save energy on, you know, on the use of the, of the appliance or, you know, the, the machine. So that's an, that's an interesting point. A, a couple of things there. One is, just one thing I thought about there, Amy, is, um, you know, anytime you, have, you move to a new paradigm of, 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 of doing things, our minds have to kind of, you know, we have to be creative in, in how our minds open up to the possibilities because we've been trained to be in this little box. And you talked about the shapes, and that's what made me think of that, is you kind of have to expand and not be boxed in, right? I mean, because there's so many more potential applications, seems like. Right, yeah. And so that 3D printer, since we're not carving around, sorry, that's my son. He's wanting to be on the interview, too. That's okay. <laughs> um, um, since you're not carving uh, from a block of material, you're not, you know, when you're, when you're carving, you're, on, you're limited by where you can get your tool into the part, right? Um, and so with 3D printing, though, you're seeing every little bit of the part. You have com pretty much complete control over where yeah. that material goes. So, yeah, to That's that amazing. point, it's, um, it's, uh, it's so – the design space is so open and so free that you really do – I don't know that we're actually leveraging it as best as we can, <laughs> Well, and that's why I say you know, the mind has to open up to all the possibilities because it's such a new thing. You know, it's such a new way to think about things. Uh, you mentioned uh, the less energy, so I would imagine there's potential uh, positives for the environmental impact of this. Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of two main um, ways that we save energy with 3D printing. It doesn't always save energy, but in some cases it does. That's part of our research is to find those cases. Um, but the first way is actually on the production of the part itself. So in certain um, parts, so let's talk about airplanes, um, the frame of airplanes um, is made of titanium. And there's a lot of energy wasted making that because you spend a lot of energy um, heating the metal up to cast into a nice sheet. And then you spend a lot of energy actually cutting most of that away <laughs> into that nice light aircraft frame. And so... Um, that is pretty wasteful. There's this thing called the buy-to-fly ratio, which is how much material we buy versus how much we, we fly. And it's like 30 to 1. So you buy 30 pounds of titanium, and you end up only flying one. And so with 3D printing, you know, if we, we were to print that, we're only going to print exactly what we need, yeah. nothing that we don't. Um, there might be a little tiny bit of machining around, you know, to, to clean things up. Um, but overall, we save a lot of energy by not having that huge buy-to-fly ratio so we can reduce the buy-to-fly to like two to one. Um, so that's one way. But then what I had said before was we can make these um, what we call optimized structures, which are perform better and save energy. So now instead of making a traditional aircraft frame um, that's limited by machining or traditional manufacturing, we can make a frame that, you know, it looks really crazy. Like you look at it and you're like, this looks crazy. <laughs> Um, but it's what we call an optimized structure. It's very organic. Um, the the struts, you know, instead of being like straight, they're they may be a little bit curved, and it's 
it's a very optimized structure and it actually ends up being lighter because we can optimize it. And so an aircraft that's lighter uses less fuel. And so sure. those are the two ways that we can save energy is not only on the production, but then on the, the end use, the lifetime of the part. We're visiting with Dr. Amy Elliott. She's out at Oak Ridge National Lab, and we're, we're talking about innovation and trends for the next decade. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on over in Oak Ridge. Now, later in the show, in my dollars and cents segment, I'm going to talk about the implications of going more and more to a cashless society. And then we're also going to talk about trends and innovation in the medical industry, including research and accomplishments uh, with the treatment of cancer. So we got lots of good stuff. Please stay with us. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm your host, Jim Brogan. We're on every Saturday at 9 a.m. and then again at 3 p.m. We also podcast all of our shows at broganfinancial.com. Check it out. Today we're talking about innovation and trends for the next 10 years and how that's going to affect the economy and all these things. Uh, We're visiting uh, with Dr. Amy Elliott. Uh, She is over at Oak Ridge National Lab and really an expert in the world of 3D printing, and we've been discussing that, uh, which is really fascinating to me. Um, Amy, ORNL is a place for scientists to innovate, research, produce technologies that really can impact future generations. What is one of the more exciting projects that you have seen come out of the lab in the past decade? Yeah, so I guess I have to stick with 3D printing. That's my that's my favorite. <laughs> sure. So. Um, uh, probably the biggest impact that we've had is um, large-scale 3D printing or just, you know, big 3D printing. We call it BAM, Big Area Additive Manufacturing. Um, additive Manufacturing is that technical name. Um, but, yeah, so these are massive printers. Um, they they can print parts, you know, 20 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet um, really and, and really quickly, too. And so the first demonstration that we did, actually was printing the, a car, <laughs> a whole car that you can drive in full size. And it really took less than 24 hours. Um, that was a partnership with a local company, Local Motors. Um, to print the whole car. And it was print the whole, yeah. So, well, you in know, print the, print the chassis, <laughs> print the right. frame, bolt, and then you bolt on, you know, you bolt on the wheels and the, the electric motor and the steering and, every, and all the mechanical parts. But, you know, the bulk of the part was printed. Um, wow. And then since then, we yeah, and so that's really been transformative, and that's really actually started a whole new industry. There's a lot, so many companies that have adopted this technology and have these giant printers now and this technology and are making all, all sorts of things. So outside of the 3D printing realm, what are some projects and innovative technologies that are being worked on out at ORNL? Um, I feel like if there's anything energy-related, we're doing it. So we do... Um, you know, battery technology, uh, re- you know, all kinds of renewables, um, fuel, alternative fuels, uh, you name it. And so there's, there's a lot of innova- innovation happening. Um, we have a lot of partnerships with companies. I think that's really where we um, make our biggest impact is, is having our ear to the ground and understanding um, what's happening in industry so that we can help those innovations happen uh, within, you know, the context of an actual manufacturing plant. Um, so, for instance, we have the ability to um, uh, test out battery manufacturing on a small scale um, and not have to invest so much material into a high, you know, high scale production 
Um, so companies can come in and test things for low cost and then actually be able to scale up, um, understand how it could scale up. So lots of different things like that. Um, well, on the energy front, that's interesting. Um, you know, we were trying to figure out how we could fit everything into an innovation show this week. And we're, we actually decided on the energy side, we're probably going to do almost a whole show just on energy innovation because it's amazing how the world is changing. And with hydrocarbons and, and, inter, and, and wind and solar and all the different things that are being developed, uh, it's just interesting what's going to happen in the coming decade. But um, l- let me ask you this now. I've got to get to the fact that you are no stranger in television. So you were cast on the Discovery Channel's The Big Brain Theory, which is a reality show competition for engineers. And you are also a science personality for the Science Channel's Outrageous Acts of Science. And you are an on-camera producer and co-host for RoboNation TV, which is a web series that focuses on advances in robotics. And we're going to talk about robotics in the medical industry with our guest in, uh, here towards a little bit later in the show. But what has been one of the most fascinating things that you have seen in your television jobs? Um, let's see. This, this may not be, like, fascinating, but it was cool to me. Um, I did get to meet Buzz Aldrin on The Big Brain oh, wow. Theory. Um, by the way, the original title of the show was Top Engineer. I would have never signed up for a show called Big Brain Theory. <laughs> um, anyway, but uh, yeah, so I ended up getting second place on that competition, which is way better than I thought it would do. <laughs> so I was happy for that. But then when I got second, Buzz took me by the shoulders and he said, I know what it's like to live in the shadow of another, you know, because he's like second man on the moon. <laughs> and so yeah. um, I was like, oh, my gosh, Buzz Aldrin just totally equated me to himself. So I was like super happy about getting second at that oh, point. Um, so that's that's probably the, <laughs> the coolest thing um, that happened to me. And then also, I think just, the you know, we got to build some really amazing things um, on the big brain theory. But then getting to do RoboNation TV and seeing um, all the innovation in autonomous robotics, specifically the um the underwater and overwater marine robotics. Um, so Robination is sponsored by AUVSI, the autonomous under, um, <clears throat> but from the Navy. And so, um, yeah, that, it's just really interesting to see the artificial intelligence that's going into robotics these days. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's not as good as you think it would be. Like sometimes these robots are processing pretty slow, but still they're making decisions and they're navigating these really difficult environments. And it's just amazing to watch. Yeah, it is pretty wild. Uh, finally, Amy, before you leave, I want to ask about you're so passionate about youth and in particular young women to encourage interest in STEM and STEM careers. How important is it for younger generations to get involved in the STEM fields? You know, STEM is so important. I like to say everything goes back to STEM. Just think about all the stuff you have, you know your clothes, your car, your house, and even infrastructure, like roads, bridges, um, you know, communications, power lines, all of this goes back to STEM. We wouldn't have any of this without STEM. And so I think we do such a good job in STEM that we forget, <laughs> or, you know, it makes it, it makes it look so easy that people don't realize it's, it's all around them, right? We take it for granted. And so, um, it's just so important. And, um, STEM is just, to me, my mission to get more girls into STEM is really to help them, right? Like, you know, STEM needs them, but they also need, you know, they can need STEM too. Like, for me, my STEM career has been just 
amazing. I've had so many amazing opportunities and just, it's really fun. It's not always fun, you know, work is work, but (laughs) for the most part, it's a very rewarding career. Um, I'm much better off than I would be if I had picked my original career choice, which was like musician, which is a great career choice too, but um, I wasn't probably as good as I needed to be. (laughs) So um, well, yeah, that's interesting, uh, Amy. You I, know that my undergraduate degree was music, uh, music education, and actually, uh, I met my wife. <laughs> well, my my wife, I met my wife singing professionally. For we sang, kind of off and on for about five or six years when we got out of college and, and through college. So that's interesting. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like I say, like I I was probably not good enough at it to to do it do anything with it. So I definitely applaud people who want to do that but that was just really not where I belonged um but yeah so I ended up in STEM and um it's just been amazing and I really want to give the opportunity to to other young women as well yeah that's fantastic well a lot of people don't realize that people that are musical usually are pretty good at math applications because of the way the brain you know because so much of music is built around really with the scales it's it's kind of built around there there's a lot of I mean there's a, the, the way the brain processes that is very similar. But, uh, but anyway, so Dr. Amy Elliott over <laughs> at Oak Ridge National Lab, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today and talk about all this great innovation out at Oak Ridge. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm so, so happy to be here. That was great. That's Dr. Amy Elliott out at Oak Ridge National Lab. And uh, they just do. It's just incredible what we have right here in, right here down in the technology corridor out towards Oak Ridge. It's amazing what we have right here in East Tennessee. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about the implications of going more and more to a cashless, a cashless society. Everything is is more and more virtual now. I'll do that with my dollars and cents segment. And then we also have Dr. Wesley White. He's a urologist over at the University of Tennessee. He's also uh, helps head some of the research initiatives at the University of Tennessee Hospital. We're going to talk about medical innovation. So stay with us as you're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Thank you for tuning in to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We come to you every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. And today we're talking about innovation. We've spoken with uh, what's go- all the great things happening out at the Oak Ridge National Lab. Uh, and it, I now want to talk about the implications of going more and more to a cashless society as it is time for dollars and cents. Is cash still king? That's our subject for today's dollars and cents segment, and it mirrors, kind of folds right into this uh, discussion on innovation. You know, uh, first off, according to Coin News, in 2020, it cost roughly 1.76 cents to make one penny. So it actually costs more to make the penny than it's worth. And not only is producing the cost of money a negative, the convenience of having exact change at your fingertips is playing a bigger part of the appeal of cash. And the days of cash being king may be coming to an end. You know, banks are creating their own apps that allow virtual banking and mobile deposits. You can go to the grocery store and get cash back. A lot of people don't even have to go to ATMs anymore for cash. These conveniences have led to many of you probably haven't even visited a bank branch for transactions in months or even years. And I think the pandemic has sped all this up. You know, the movement from bank transfers or cash payments to peer-to-peer apps like Venmo 
It makes it as easier to settle up with our friends if we go to dinner or need to share for tickets. And contactless digital forms of payment through things like Apple Pay and other wallet applications, it's become an ordinary way of life. So the world of on- and the world of online shopping has grown by leaps and downs. And experts predict it will become a, continue to be a major revenue stream for retailers. And then, of course, online giant Amazon had profit growth of 84% in 2020. And it's interesting when we look at the number of digital payment transactions. You know, in 2020, it was estimated that at the end of the year, the United States would have about 160 million, excuse me, 160 billion digital payment transactions. And if I go back a few years, just four or five years ago, the United, North America was number one in digital payment transactions. Europe was number two, and Asia and the Pacific Rim was number three. However, at the end of 2020, Asia is far and away ahead now, and then Europe, and then the United States. And it's projected uh, that Asia, the Asia-Pacific Rim is going to explode in digital transactions, and the United States is not. It's going to maintain a pretty steady rate. We might get up near 200 billion transactions from where we are right now, around 160. But that's over a period of like, you know, the next three years. And Asia's going up to maybe close to over 400 billion transactions in a year. And Europe is embracing it more. So that's very, very interesting to me. Uh, I think a lot of that is the embracing in the emerging markets, China particularly. But you know, a lot of the emerging markets really didn't have these virtual applications, and now they are. But there's implications for our economy. Uh, you know, when, we, when everything's electronic like that, the technology to support that is growing so fast, there are tremendous technological innovation. There are companies that are, the, the way that they're speeding along in their ability to do virtual application of money uh, is creating disruptions in many, many different industries. And when there is economic disruption like that, it can really lead to a lot of growth, but it also can disrupt markets and e- economics because it's hard to price something like that. So there can really be some tremendous opportunities for growth and investment. Uh, but then there are also some real safety issues. You know, there are concerns uh, as the number of payment options continues to increase that I know m- many of you are concerned about keeping your payment information sa- safe. And one, one survey by TSYS found that 30% of consumers are very concerned about payment security and 58% are somewhat concerned. So over half of us are concerned about the security of our payment information. So it's just going to be something that's very interesting to watch and evolve. It's something that is a reality of life. We're going to have to embrace it. Uh, It creates security issues. It also creates investment opportunities. We will continue to monitor this. And then not to even mention the world of cyber currency and the embracing of cyber currency, especially Bitcoin, Uh, And how does that evolve over the next five to ten years? So a lot to still be determined, but the innovation in the world of cash and how we pay for things is going to continue to evolve and change. 
do check us out online at broganfinancial.com. Now, my, I do want to mention my upcoming class, Financial Survival for Retirement. It's at the University of Tennessee. It's a two-part class, two two-hour sessions. It's on May 4th and the 11th at the Downtown Conference Center, or you can attend virtually via Zoom. You can call the University of Tennessee at 974 974- 0150. If you're out in your car, go ahead and call them right now. Leave a message. They'll call you back Monday. Again, it's 974-0150. It is through their non-credit programs. For people that if you're if you're retired or getting close to retirement, the class is really for you. I cover all the seven major areas that you need to be aware of to, to be able to start putting together a successful plan to transition into retirement and to live through your retirement years successfully. Uh, it's interesting, all the trends. Uh, there's a new report showing that, uh, and it, it kind of confirms what we've already known, is that once you retire, you will slow your spending down. You don't necessarily need to keep up with the enemy of inflation. You do need your income to grow in retirement, but maybe not as much as the rate of inflation. There's just more and more data coming out that's significant that you need to be aware of, and we talk about that in the class. You can also find out more about the class at financialsurvivalforretirement.com, and uh, you can download a syllabus and also register for the class. Again, it's financialsurvivalforretirement.com. It's at the University of Tennessee on May 4th and 11th, 6.30 to 8.30 both nights. Tuition is $59. Now, our next guest is a great friend of the show, Dr. Wesley White. He is a board-certified urologist, and he conducts research on robotic treatments for various urological cancers. And we're going to talk about innovation in the medical field and with cancer research and technology. Good morning, Dr. White. It's great to have you on with us. Hey, Jim. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule. It's always great to have you on. Um, as we look at the cancer, let's start with the cancer field. That's certainly the area that you are best adept to talk, and, and most of your research is on. First off, when it talks about when we talk about treatment applications, Dr. White, talk about the field of robotics. We we talked with Dr. Amy Elliott of Oak Ridge National Lab earlier about a little bit about robotics. Talk about the application in the medical field and how it's advancing how we treat cancer. Uh, sure. You know, a lot of what I do on a routine basis in treating uh, patients with urinary tract cancers uh, is surgical. And nearly all of that these days is done robotically. Uh, I can, you know, I'm only about 10 to 12 years into my formal practice at this point in time. And when I was training back in the early 2000s, robotics was really not, um, it was just kind of coming into its own. But we were still doing open surgeries through larger incisions, which meant longer hospital stays and more pain and a longer time to recover. And now, pretty much all of that is done through smaller incisions with aid of the robot. And uh, those, you know, for what used to be maybe a three to four day stay when I was in training is now an overnight stay in the hospital for some of the operations that I do. So it's really, it, it's, uh, it's completely changed the way that urology is practiced and will probably be the hallmark of what I do for the entirety of my career. Well, and we've had Dr. Stephanie Cross on, who's an OBGYN, and she's talked about the incredible applications in that field as well. So I think 
everything in the medical field is evolving. Uh, when it comes to diagnostic tools, Dr. White, can you talk, like, what is liquid biopsy? And, and what kinds of cancer can be detected by liquid biopsy? Yeah, so it's definitely an evolving field, and there's even a little bit of application in what I do insofar as prostate cancer goes. But liquid biopsy is the idea that cancer cells produce molecules or um, identifiable substances in your bloodstream. Uh, I don't think people don't need to, you know, catastrophize and think, oh, gosh, there's floating cancer cells in me at any, at any given time. But we do know that cancer cells give off certain molecules or signals, which some researchers are able to detect through a blood or urine sample. Um, the um, purpose of using, quote, a liquid biopsy would be to detect those um, circulating tumor cells um, uh, in a manner that is less invasive than a traditional biopsy. So for prostate cancer, for instance, there is a certain subsegment of men who may be at risk or there is concern for active prostate cancer, and you can obtain either a urine, uh, in this case, a urine study um, that detects uh, certain types of molecules that are released by cancer cells, and that may push you towards or away from a formal prostate biopsy. The problem is, is that, you know, it's not validated across all subsegments of men. We certainly know that, you know, African-American men tend to have genetically different cancers than Caucasian men and Asian men. And so it, it, we can't, we can't, it's not a one size fits all type of a uh, diagnostic tool. And so it's, it's part of our armamentarium for diagnosis, but not exclusively what we would use. Dr. White, as technology develops, uh, one of the things I was talking about with, with Amy Elliott at Oak, over in Oak Ridge is, the, is with 3D technology is the costs of it. And, and the costs yeah, have yeah. to come down to really be able to truly apply a lot of that stuff. What about the costs of the medical technology and how that gets balanced with these applications? It's, it's tough. I mean, uh, you know, I think back uh, with what I do going back 10 years and the number and availability of good treatments for some of the cancers that I manage is significantly, significantly better. And without question, um, my patients, especially those with more advanced diseases at presentation, they're living longer, um, they're um, doing better. But that does come at a, at a very high cost. I mean, these, these, some of these, especially the immunotherapeutics, which are keeping people alive for a long time, they're very expensive to develop. And uh, the um, pharmaceutical companies are, of course, interested in recapping or recouping their investments on that. And so it, it does put stress on the uh, insurance system. Now, if you take robotics, for instance, there's actually a bit of a balance there. If you think about the investment cost of buying a robot somewhere around $2 million to a hospital, but yet that same operation allows the patient to only have to stay in the hospital one night versus three to four nights, then there's quite a bit of balance and there's quite a bit of study out there looking at how it can be a cost-effective tool. So in some ways, technology and it's very, um, you know, at its very essence, it's supposed to help make any type of process easier, faster, and more efficient. And robotics, of course, coming from a biased robotic surgeon, helps to do that. Um, but, yeah, costs are always a concern as far as capital expenditures and initial outlay. Dr. White, how close are we to a cure for cancer? It seems like we're hearing more on that front. So how close are we, do you think? 
Well, I mean, uh, I, you know, no one wants to be pessimistic and say that there's no secret sauce out there. I think that in the last 10 years, we have made such incredible strides in, in offering patients perhaps not a cure for cancer, but long-term durable control of cancer. Um, we're doing better from a screening standpoint. We're doing better from a treatment standpoint. And then for those that are unfortunately not what we would consider curable through conventional means, control of the disease with uh, fewer side effects and, and uh, a better quality of life and offering them some increased length of life as a, as a byproduct. So, you know, I think cure, we have to be careful about using that term too loosely. Um, I think that the next frontier will definitely be um, you know, every, all the research right now is about genetics and individualizing treatment to the uh, person um, based on their their individual reason for developing cancer in the first place. Um, and, you know, for one example is at, at UT Hospital, um, where we have a tissue biobank, which is collecting tissue from patients and looking at their individual cancers and looking at the genetic cause and the environmental cause and trying to find what signature within the genome caused the cancer to develop in the first place, and then working with researchers and including ORNL, et cetera, to develop treatments that are targeted to the individual. And, and you know, whether that'll happen in my lifetime or not, I don't know, but we're certainly so much farther ahead than we were even 10 to 15 years ago. We're visiting with Dr. Wesley White as we continue our show on innovation. We've got to get to our last break, and unfortunately, we're running out of time. I could talk about this forever. Uh, there's so much stuff we could cover, but when we come back, we'll kind of wrap up with, with Dr. White and talk about the, the, uh, the implication of the, the mRNA technology with the vaccine for coronavirus. So don't, don't go away as you listen to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm Jim Brogan. We're visiting with Dr. Wesley Watt about medical innovation, especially in the cancer field and urological uh, research, which, of course, is what Dr. White is in. Uh, I do want to talk. I can't leave this uh, show without talking about the mRNA vaccines that have been developed because of COVID-19. What is so different about this new vaccine technology, and how, what are the implications moving forward? Um, so uh, take this all with a grain of salt because I'm not an infectious disease expert or a virologist. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, in learning about the mRNA vaccine, and mRNA uh, essentially is, stands for messenger RNA. So, you, of course, we have DNA in the nucleus of our cells, which is really who we are. And then mRNA, uh, it's, kind of the, it's kind of the workhorse of day-to-day -day living within the cell. You know, it, it, it provides for growth and energy and protein production. And uh, what scientists were able to do, and this has been something that's been looked at for decades and decades, is um, uh, manipulating the mRNA to um, uh, basically add a protein, in this case for COVID-19, the spike or the little, you know, when they say the corona, if you look at the magnified view, the little crown on the surface of that virus, that it would essentially... Um, uh, add that onto the mRNA, and then your immune system would recognize that when the vaccine is administered, and uh, it would create antibodies against it. 
Um, I kind of, you know, traditional vaccines are a little bit like taking a weakened form of a virus uh, and injecting it into your body. So in some ways, I would say the difference is, you know, a traditional vaccine like a flu vaccine is like injecting an old wolf in your system, whereas the mRNA is more like injecting a sheep in wolf's clothing. Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit of a, a of a different thing. And now the interesting thing is that, it, you know, when they're able to do this, they can scale it very aggressively um, because it's being produced in the lab. And the future could hold that you're able to actually um, give one mRNA vaccine to cover multiple different illnesses. And they're even looking at this for cancer treatments as well. Again, those circulating uh, molecules from cancer cells essentially creating an mRNA vaccine, which would attack them through your natural immune system. Well, Dr. White, I hate we're out of time. Um, how can people find out more about university urology? Uh, we'll certainly go through the UT Medical Center website and uh, click on urology. Uh, we also have urologypc.net, which is our local website, and then obviously through the UT Cancer Institute as well. You can reach us there. Dr. White, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Jim, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. That's Dr. Wesley White at University Urology. We also had on Amy Elliott, Dr. Amy Elliott over at Oak Ridge National Lab, as we've been discussing innovation and the way it could really change our lives over the next 10 years so we can live the best years of, your, of our lives the way we want to live them. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Chris Engineering, and thank you to Jill producing the show. You've been listening to More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk, 80, News Talk 98.7 WOKI.